Turn, if you would, in the New Testament to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3. This is going to be an exciting morning for me personally this morning. Got a new pair of glasses and I can't see a thing. <laughs> so let's see what God does with a, the blind man once again. You know, despite being under house arrest in Rome and awaiting trial, Paul declares that his highest goal in life, the overarching passion, the obsession that drove him, he, we found last week in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. No one in his right mind would say, I want to share in anybody's sufferings. I can feel empathetic towards them, but nobody wants to enter into it. When he's talking about, I want to share in not only the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, he understands that Christ teaches us stuff by suffering. The things that we go through teach us things. We don't always appreciate the lesson when it happens. But we go through it for a reason and a purpose that we accept by faith. He knows what he's doing. We know he loves us. He's got everything under control. He wants us to worry about nothing, despite the fact that we constantly worry about everything. He wants to become like Christ, identifying himself with the death and burial and resurrection of his Lord and Savior, being conformed to his death. And that's interesting how that's put in the original language. Being conformed to his death is in uh, the middle or passive voice. It means it's a work that God is doing in you. It's not a sanctification. Holiness and growth in holiness is not something you arrive at by self-effort. It's a work of God as you put yourself in his presence. That happens in praise and worship potentially. It can happen when you sit down at your quiet time at your table and open your Bible every day. But God, every time you interface with him, he wants to change you. Don't ever let church become just church. I go there because that's what I do on Sunday mornings. You always want to come with this sense of eager anticipation. I want to meet God there this morning. I want to praise his holy name. I want to surrender to the things that are really aggravating me. I want, to, I want to know his resurrection power. I want to be able to embrace my sufferings without complaint if there is some spiritual purpose of God's that they serve. I want to tell him that I love him every day and thank him that he loved me first. And Paul says, and somehow or another in ways that the common man can't quite understand, we attain to the resurrection from the dead. God is going to do this for us. But your job and mine is to put ourselves in a place where you can hear the voice of God. If you're not in the Word of God, you're not hearing the voice of God. If you're not in prayer, you're not hearing the voice of God. If you are a participant in praise and worship, you potentially can open yourself up to hearing the voice of God. If you are a spectator watching other people in a church praise and worship, you'll never hear from God. Understand there is a level of intimacy that God has called you to that escapes most Christians in 21st century America. There is a, a, a relationship of a depth of which none of us have touched sufficiently. I don't know how deep your walk with the Lord is, but it could be deeper. It could be more meaningful. 
It reminds me of the child who's playing out in the ocean when my little daughter Jenny was growing up. She used to hang out in these little tide pools when she was two and three years old. Remember that? We'd go to the beach and the tide went and pull out, leave these little tide pools all over. And she would have the time of her life. But that's all she could handle. That's all she could handle. But as she got older, she wanted to go out into deeper water. Deeper water. Deeper water. She swims like a fish, and now and her children do the same. And it's wonderful. It's interesting to think about that. If you get offshore in the ocean and put on a pair of swim fins and a flotation device and a snorkel, man, it seems like you can just paddle away for hours and hours and hours. How deep's the water below you? Well, if you're just offshore, it's pretty shallow. If you're swimming over the Marianas Trench off the coast of the Philippines, it's 35,000 feet deep. How deep do you want to go? It's up to you. It's up to you. And no one can limit how far you go in Christ except you. No one can. That is the most freeing truth that I've, I've stumbled across in many a year. We talk about, we sing about freedom that we have. We're free to run. You're free to swim as deep into the Lord as you want to. How deep do you want that relationship? How intimate? How much of that love do you want to lay hands on? You want to touch the hem of his garment? Are you willing to get on your knees? Are you willing to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord? Paul says, I want to know Christ. That's what drives me. I want to know Christ. Gnosko, properly to know, especially through firsthand personal experience. You can't ride somebody else's coattails into heaven. You got to know Jesus yourself. I can read until the cows come home, but I can't read for you. I can pray myself until the Holy Spirit overfills me magnificently, but I can't do that for you. Only you can do that for you. And it is your choice daily to do so or not. This firsthand personal experience, it, it's a word that's used in Luke chapter 1 and verse 34. It says, and Mary, who was a virgin, <clears throat> said to the angel, how will this be that I'm going to have a son since I do not know, gnosko, the same word, I do not know a man. I haven't been sexually intimate with a man. Well, that's the same word that Paul uses here. I want to know Christ as intimately as husbands know wives and vice versa. I want to know I'm on a deeper level than anyone. That's my one life's goal, to eat intimately, deeply, experience more and more of Christ and, and be more and more conformed to his image. It should drive every one of us. Husbands, this is what your wife wants you to do. To be conformed to the image of Christ. What's that look like? Well, Jesus was full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Your wife's waiting for you to get there. What's stopping you? You. And your wife has been patiently waiting for how long? <laughs> for you to latch on to the deeper truths, intimacy in that relationship. Wives? You know what your husband's been looking for in you? Intimacy with Jesus. What's that look like? Love and joy and peace and patience. That's why he married you. He wants to see those things. So ladies and gentlemen, we all have our work in this world. The tendency is to be lazy. 
You hear how quiet it is? It's always quiet when I step on toes. I am not here to step on your toes. I'm here to challenge you to do something about it. To do something about it. If the glasses don't fit, take them off. If they help you, put it on. Get in the Word of God. Get in prayer. Get in the habit of praise and worship. Have it playing at home and in the car and at work as much as possible. Becoming like Him in His death. And again, that's in a passive voice. The closer I get to Christ, the more of the old nature dies. I've been crucified with Christ, but that's a a continuous and ongoing work that God is doing for us as we abide in him. So our, our prayer is, Lord, make me like you. I humble myself before you. This requires humility. That's certainly in short supply today. Make me like you, Lord. Make me like you. He goes on as he starts there in verse 12, and he says, yes, I want to know Christ. It's what drives my life, but I'm not there yet. The same could be said for every one of us in this room. But this is what I'm going to do about it, Paul says. I'm not content to hear the diagnosis. You're not where you need to be spiritually. I'm not content with just hearing the diagnosis. Can I do something about it? Men are fixers. This is something you can fix. This is something you can fix. You got a squeaky door at home, you put some lubricant on it. It's not rocket science. You do something about it. But to never do anything about the squeaky door means that you really don't care. To never pursue Christ and that intimacy that is available to us tells the Lord, I really don't care. There will be a day of answering for that, by the way. God will honor whatever choices you make. But there will be a day of accounting of that. So he says in verse 12, not that I have, I'm pursuing Christ, yes, but not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect. But here's what I do. And this is what you want to highlight. Because you want to do something if you're not where you are supposed to be spiritually. How do you know if where you're supposed to be spiritually is the correct place? Ask your spouse. Honey, do you think I'm every bit the spiritual man or woman that I could possibly be? Am I there? And if they love you, they will say, heck no. (laughs) There's room for improvement. Love you where you're at. But there's always room for improvement. Not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not there yet. I'm not telling you I'm perfect. But this one thing I do. Now, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Anytime you hear that kind of language in the Bible, one thing is more important than anything else you're going to read in the book. You'll want to know what that one thing is. You want to do it because there's nothing more important. You can ignore anything and everything else in life, but you cannot ignore this. Paul says, this one thing I do, I've highlighted in mine so many times, it's bled through the first five pages. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, the good, the bad, the ugly, 
and straining toward what is ahead. I press on. That's vigorous terminology in the original language. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love his humility. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived spiritually, he says back in in verse 12. I've not already been made perfect. And that's again in the passive voice that says, I'm not in God's presence yet, so I'm not perfected yet. I'm moving in that direction. It won't be complete until I stand in his presence. But I'm working on it, and someday when I stand in his presence, it'll be done. In the passive voice, he's doing it for me. He's going to change me someday radically. We, we have the perfection of Christ that has been imputed to us so that in God's eyes, we meet his standard of perfection. You and I are not perfected, but Christ was perfect, and he's clothed us in his own perfection. So positionally, I'm there. Experientially, I'm still a work in progress. There's a big difference. Our experience in daily practice, the outworking of our faith, it's an ongoing process called sanctification. Big word that just means we're getting better. We're becoming more and more like him. The word perfect, when the Bible uses it of people just like us, it doesn't refer to sinless perfection. Certainly, there were a whole lot of Old Testament characters that were described as being blameless, wholly devoted. They obviously weren't sinless. The term means to be mature, whole, complete, or here, like here, it is here, perfect. And our sanctification will find its fulfillment when we see Christ, when we see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, We see now, but in a poor reflection as in a mirror. But someday we're going to see him face to face. Now I know him in part because I'm so limited. But then in that day when I see him, I shall be fully known even as I shall know fully even as I am fully known. In other words, the best is yet to come. But don't stop pursuing maturity in this life. There is no such thing as stasis in the Christian life. If you're not moving forward, you're falling back. It's a lie from the pit of hell that says, I'm okay, you're okay, we got it on cruise control, we're just... That's not a representation of anything found in Scripture. Maybe a lie from the enemy that you bought off on. Paul says in the the most vigorous terms in verse 12, I press on. And he says, I'm doing that now in the active voice. He says, only I can do it. Nobody can do this for me. I press on. Can you say that? Can you say honestly, I, Pastor Jim, I press on with all that is within me. I'm continuously continuing to pursue. It's a continuous and ongoing activity only I can do. Nobody can do it for me. Paul had made huge, huge gains in in Christ-likeness, to be sure. But the goal was still before him. The finish line, still in view, but he hadn't gotten there yet. So he was running as vigorously as he can. I don't know if you ever were in sports in high school. Tall, skinny kid like me, all I could do was run long distances. So I could run from here to Pueblo. It wasn't a problem. I was a tall, skinny drink of water as a kid. But my coaches would always tell me, you don't stop running until you bust the tape. 
You never stop trying. doesn't matter if you're in first place or last place. You strain that last 110 yards of the open quarter. You strain with all that is within you. And that's all any man can ask of you. Whether you finish first place or tenth is irrelevant. What matters is how hard you try. How hard do you try? Most of us think that Christianity is a jogging exercise. We don't really want to work up a sweat. We're doing better than walking, certainly better than crawling when we were first infants, but we don't really want to run. We're afraid it'll be too hard. It'll take too much time or effort. What Paul had learned is that the goal is still before me. It's not behind me. Paul's goal really was Christ's goal for him. What's yours? Is your goal in life the same as Christ's goal for you? What it implies there in verse 12, the way it's worded, is that God has done his part. I must do my part to continuously pursue. His son has already come. God has already created a place. He has sent his Holy Spirit, given us his word. What else can we expect God to do? He's waiting for us to step up. Waiting for us to say, I'm hungry for you, Lord, and more of you. In these Laodicean times, it's easy to be lukewarm, but know this. Any old dead fish can float downstream. Takes a live one to buck the current and go in the opposite direction where life lies, not death. Fenelon, the Greek, excuse me, the French cleric from the Middle Ages, he used to say, you know, the wind of God is always blowing, but you must hoist the sail. We expect, you know, if God's wind is going to blow me here or there, that's fine. You know, God's wind is always blowing, but you have to do your part. You have to hoist the sail. I like how he put that. Why did Jesus take hold of you? Notice what he says there. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Why did Jesus take hold of you? To reveal God's perfect will for your life. That's why. He saved you so that your life might glorify him. That's the only reason you breathe today. God can potentially continue to use you as long as he leaves you here on planet Earth. He's got a plan for you. He's working it out, but you've got to hoist the sail. What is God's perfect will for my life? That I get saved, obviously. It's God's will that none should perish, Peter tells us. What's God's will for me? Why did he take hold of me? He wants me to mature in Christ's likeness. He wants me to grow. We have expectations of our children to grow physically, don't we? Every time I go see my grandchildren, I see them every single week. I would die if I didn't get to see them every single week. And every week it seems like they've grown another inch. And I know they're really tired of saying, Papa, you always say, every time you see us, my, you have sure grown. They have. They do. That's normal. If God were to look at you and I this morning, have we grown spiritually? Or are we in an arrested state of development? Which is, by the way, not physically healthy. 
once you stop growing as a child, there's a plateau there that can be life-threatening. But for somehow or another, we Christians feel like, well, I've reached this level. I know Jesus. I'm saved. Got my fire insurance. I'm good. In a rested state of spiritual development, that's not God's will for you. Maturity is. Are you pursuing it? It's all on you. It, are you pursuing it? What are you doing? You say, I want to be a better Christian than I am. What are you doing about it? You say, well, Pastor Jim, I did come to church this morning. And I'm glad you did. But there's 168 hours in a week, and I get you for one. If you're slacking the other 167 hours in the week, what chance do I have to make up for 167 hours of neglect on your part when I only have access to you for one hour? If you fed your baby only one meal a week, they would perish. But somehow or another, we think that's okay as a Christian. I don't have to read my Bible, Pastor Jim. Hey, that's why we pay him the big bucks. A, I don't make big bucks. <laughs> but secondly, I can read only for my benefit, not yours. I can get in touch with Jesus Christ in this intimate personal relationship. I can only do that for myself. Oh, I'd do it for you in a heartbeat if I could, but I can't. We all hide behind the excuse of busyness. But if you notice, you have the same 24 hours in any given day that Jesus Christ had. The same 24 hours. He always seemed to have enough time to do the perfect will of his heavenly Father. He always seemed to find time to secret himself away on a mountaintop and pray and seek the face of his heavenly Father. we got to find those quiet times in our lives. Carve them out. Be intentional. You say, well, there's no place I can go. I can't afford to go anywhere else. Gas is the highest. I, I'm stuck at home. Lock yourself in the bathroom. Tell them everything will be fine. You'll come out when you're done. If there's an emergency, there is outdoor plumbing that is still sufficient uh, in the wilderness. You'd want to find a place where you meet with God regularly. I don't care if it's your bedroom, your kitchen table. My best time is before anybody else wakes up and i got the whole house to myself and even the dogs are still asleep. And I can just sit down with a cup of coffee and the Word of God. That is the most precious time of the entire day to me. There's nothing more important. And I will not do anything else until I do that. I will not partake of any physical food until I have partaken of some spiritual food. It's just a commitment you have to make. We have no trouble at all continuously continuing to feed our bodies, but we not so often can neglect our spirits. Don't do that. It hurts every facet of your life when you do. It hurts every other relationship you have in life when you neglect yours with God. As we pursue him, know this, it's going to end someday in perfection and walking into eternity. It's going to be glorious. Paul says in verse 13, I, I'm, not, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And then he says something strange. This one thing I do, and then he names two things. And you're wondering, did he flunk fifth grade English literature or, or, or grammar? I mean, what's, why? Does this make any sense? 
Paul, but when Paul says, I devote myself to one thing, you want to highlight it because that's, that one thing needs to be important in your life. Take note of this one thing and devote yourself to it. First of all, notice who is doing the one thing. Paul says, I am. Doesn't matter if anybody else on this planet is doing it or not, I am. And only I can do it. Only I can arrange my priorities to align with God's. And makes you, it makes me wonder, what's your one thing? What's your one thing? Yours. Not, is, is it yours or is it the Lord's? Your goals, dreams, hopes, aspirations, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, the amount of money you want to make, ad infinitum. Are your goals the same as God's, and how do you know that? Have you sought it out in God's Word? Have you prayed about it? Have you gotten significant others in your life to pray about God's direction in your life? Have you walked through open doors that you've prayed about and God opened? Or are you trying to grab a crowbar and open a door that's of your liking but not God's making? What's your one thing? You want to make sure that one thing is the Lord's. But I find it fascinating, and I had to think about it for a long time. When Paul says one thing and then mentions two things, I understood that the two go together. They must go together. These two aspects have to go together. So when Paul says one thing and then lists two, understand it's a two-step process. Mm. A few examples come to mind. The guys in here, if you, if you dabble in these things, have you ever mixed up J.B. Weld? J.B. Weld is a, is a steel epoxy, and it comes in a pack of tubes that you buy cheap at Walmart, and it's got one squishy tube over here and another squishy tube over here. And you go, squishy tube, squishy tube. One's black, one's white, and you go, what am I going to do with this? Funny thing. When you take both of those parts, mix them together in equal parts, and you stir it all up, it hardens into something that is so much like steel, you can repair a cracked engine block with it. Although, by itself, squishy, 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 no strength at all. But you put the two together in equal amount, and you've got something harder than steel. Put it where you, you got, yeah, you got three minutes to work that stuff, by the way. It's not something you want to smear on your face and then hope you can get off an hour or two later. J.B. Weld, great stuff. <clears throat> and that steel-like stuff, you can drill, you can tap, you can screw, you can even repair engine blocks with it. Two things that go together, essentially, maybe on, on a day like today, it's fitting with the games this afternoon, maybe if you can't identify with J.B. Weld, maybe you can identify with Patrick Mahomes and, and, and Travis Kelsey. You can't have one without the other. It doesn't matter how good of a quarterback you are, if you don't have somebody who's good enough to catch the ball on the other side, it doesn't happen. So the two have to go together. Interesting. Interesting. You need both to make it work. Maybe another analogy. Do you realize I could have been the top NFL wide receiver of all time if they'd have had sticky gloves in 1965? <laughs> With sticky gloves, you can put 
up a finger and catch a football. You watch it and you go, that was a great catch. No, it was sticky gloves. But they have to, the receiver has to not only know what he's doing, but he needs to have the sticky gloves on to look good. You can't have one without the other. So Paul says in looking at these two aspects of it, here's what you have to do. Because I haven't taken hold of this thing called maturity, here's the two-part equation. Number one, forgetting what is behind. Notice the ing ending on forgetting. That makes it a participle, which means you have to continue doing it. Have you ever had something come up in your past and you go, I hate that person, and I just can't stand them. I'm going to give it to God. Okay, God, I'll give it to you. And then a month later, those same, same feelings come back. Well, you're going to have to do it again. Keep on doing it. It's a participle. Just highlight forgetting because it's not a one-time deal. Satan's going to make sure of that. He wants to tie you to a dysfunctional past. Don't let him. You're going to have to continually forget what is behind. Don't be tied to a dysfunctional past. And you go, Pastor Jim, you don't know how dysfunctional my past is. We only differ in kind and degree. We all came from a dysfunctional past because we all had dysfunctional parents. None of them were perfect. Some of them did a better job than others, but don't miss the point. Forgetting. Again, that's worded in such a way in the original language, the middle voice, that means I have to do it, but God will help me. I have to do it, but God will help me. Well, I can forgive, but I can't forget. If God can, why can't you? Are you greater than God? Oh, but it keeps coming up. Then keep giving it to him. Satan will keep bringing it up. But after a while, it's going to run off you like water off a duck's back. It won't bother you at all. You won't get emotionally all, I'm all still angry at that person. It, forgetting doesn't mean that you lose all memory of a sinful past. It means leave it behind as done and finished with. It's not controlling me anymore. Why? I gave it to God. And every time it comes up, I'm going to give it to God again and again and again and again. Satan is not going to get that victory because I will not be tied to a dysfunctional past. This is something that I, I and I alone, must continually do. But God will help me. That's why it's put in the middle voice in the original language. I become a co-participant in the action then. God needs your cooperation to bring you to maturity. He won't force it upon you. God will do his part. I must do my part, and I must keep on doing it. Some people are so bound to a dysfunctional past, it's almost like I like bringing it up because it makes me the center of attraction all over again. I'm the victim. I'm the victim. You should feel sorry for me because this happened to me 50 years ago. Move on. Move on. 50 years ago, you need somebody to slap you. What is your problem? You, why do you keep bringing it up? Well, I gave it to God, but it keeps coming up. Then keep giving it to God. So hamstrung living in the past that they're robbed of their present and what God wants to do in, on, and through them. You can't let Satan have that victory. Unable to see, not only unable to enjoy the present, but unable to see your glorious future. Because all we talk about and all we think about is the past. Like we have any control over the past whatsoever. 
You're tied to a dysfunctional past because you forgot to do this one thing. You neglected to continuously continue forgetting about it, renouncing it, putting it behind you. Don't let it define you. That may be who you were. That is not who you are in Christ Jesus. And it is certainly not who you're going to be in the future when Christ comes in the clouds. Get your eyes on him. Not on the past you can do nothing about. Don't let it define you. It is not who we are. It is not who we're going to be. When Paul says there in verse 13, I'm straining. Again, it's a vigorous action that God will help me with. But I must do this and continually doing it. Straining, it's the I-N-G ending. It's a participle again. But God will help me. We forget that all the time. Like, oh, it doesn't feel like anybody's there for me. I'm all in this. All God is there. He says he'll never leave you, never forsake you. God will do his part. I must do mine. When Paul says, I'm straining towards what is ahead, well, what is ahead? Eternity and a date with Jesus. You need to understand that. Every single one of us is going to see him face to face someday. And what are you going to say then? You got a list of excuses you bring in with you? That's not what happens on that day. Knowing that I'm going to meet my Lord and God and Savior face to face and walk into eternity with Him. Uh, it, it, it impresses itself upon me. Here's the deal. It's like I've left the starting line. I'm running my race. i got to keep on running my race. I can't slack. I can't give up. I can't quit. I don't look back. I choose to look forward at the finish line. It's in, in view. You don't get into trouble when you're running a foot race unless you look to the left or the right. My coaches always used to tell me, it doesn't matter who's to the left or the right. There's a finish line ahead of you. You keep your eyes on, on that finish line. Why? Because I'm running my own race and it doesn't look like yours. I can't run your race. You're not supposed to be running mine. You have a unique life set of circumstances and relationships that God is expecting you to navigate by his power and strength, and he will help you. But don't, don't start comparing your life to somebody else's. You'll either become jealous, envious, or gloating. You don't want to do any of those things. I've got to run my own race. I can't run someone else's. Here's the bottom line. And any good track coach will tell you this. You're only competing against yourself. Do you hear me? In this race to the finish line, and Christ is on the other side of the finish line, you're only competing against yourself. No one else. I am held back only by myself. I need to think about that. A San Francisco columnist put it this way, and you're wondering, could anything good come out of San Francisco? Fisherman's Wharf used to be the most delectable place to eat on planet Earth, but I only say that because we're closing in on lunchtime. It was a wonderful place. The, the seafood there, unbelievable. But one of their columnists said this, and it stuck with me. I clipped it out, and he said, quote, Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion, or it will be killed. 
Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up. It must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't really matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. I like that. I like that. I want to attack my spiritual walk with the same sense of urgency. As soon as I get up, you know, there's a race to be run. Here's why. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You are the gazelle. You hear me? You are the gazelle. And Satan has some teeth. He'd love to sink him into your hide. He is that roaring lion. First Peter 5, 8 tells us. It's not enough in the Christian life to simply wake up. We're asked to run and to become more like Christ, to press ahead into godliness. And that's what he says in verse 14. I press on, vigorous term, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm pursuing this. I'm giving it everything I got, Paul says. There's nothing more important. What's the prize? Well, Paul was fond of the athletic contest, and he knew that a runner who ran in the Olympic races, often Nero would place a plated wreath on their head, and you wonder, well, how long is that going to last? Not very. The reigning monarch would place it there, but it was temporary. Our crown, our inheritance, Peter tells us, will never perish or fade. We receive the reward of eternal glory and joy in the presence of the Lord. I can't wait. So my ultimate aspirations, dear friends, they're not found in this life. Not a house, a car, a job, a bank account. My ultimate aspirations aren't tied to any of those things. But it's tied to heaven because Jesus is there waiting for me. He's the only thing that matters anymore. The older you get, the more your perspective on life changes. And you can look back when you hit my age and go, I spent so much time wasting time pursuing vain pursuits, talking stupid, acting like I was in and of the world. So I thought like the world. I acted like the world. I had the same aspirations the world has. You don't want to look back and have a life of regret. Man, I wish I'd have read my Bible more. Wish I'd have prayed more. Wish I'd been more eager in my pursuit of Christ. I kind of dilly-dallied for years. Wasted time. Avoid a life of endless distractions that are worldly and temporary by nature. Don't be so busy you don't have time for God. You know it and I know it. It's just an excuse that you use. It's an excuse. Reassess your spiritual priorities constantly. Another way to look at it is, are what you pursuing going to pay spiritual dividends in eternity? Or does it benefit you in the here and now? It tells you what you're living for, really. What are you living for? What's really important to you? So he says, in verse 15, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Paul is an older man as he writes these words. 
And he's looking back and he's going, wish I had come to Jesus sooner. Wish I had been more earnest in pursuing Christ than I was. Paul says, you know, if on some point you think differently, you don't agree with the pastor of the church, that's okay. God will make that clear to you. I can't argue you into the kingdom of God. I can't badger you into pursuing Christ. You know you should. You know there's room for improvement in your walk. You know there is. And that's fine. We're all in that same place as Paul was. But what are you doing about it? Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting the past and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's this two-part epoxy. You, it's, you can't have one without the other. You've got to do both. Because maturity doesn't happen accidentally. If you're not intentional in pursuing Christ, you'll never be more than you are this morning. Your faith will never grow. Your victory will never be greater than it is today. The joy of your walk with the Lord, not greater than it is today, unless you do something about it. You get what you desire most. If it's not him, what is it? Well, Paul says, I'm not interested in arguing with you about it, but verse 16, but let us live up to what we've already attained. What, what, what's he saying? Well, you might be here this morning and say, well, Pastor Jimmy, you know, I don't know much. I, I, I'm a new Christian. Well, then Paul says, then let's live up to what you already know. Let's just start there. Do you know that you're loved by God? Yes. Do you know the Word of God a little bit? Can you jump into the Gospel of John and start reading a chapter today? Can you pray? Can you turn on the praise? Is there something you can do to improve your walk with the Lord? Absolutely. And that's what he's saying there, verse 16. Let's live up to what we already know. He's not asking us to be a Bible scholar. You already know you're supposed to love your brothers yourself, are you? You know that you're supposed to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, are you? If not, are you doing something about it? Because it doesn't happen unintentionally. Paul's saying, live up to what you know and live up to who you are. Live up to that. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Stand in that identity and keep moving forward, straining towards what is ahead. And then Paul says in verse 17, follow my example. It's not that he's perfect, but he says, I've made enough mistakes. I would like you to learn from mine. Understand that as he's closing in on the end of his life, he's awaiting execution. He's telling you, this is really important, guys. need you to sink your teeth into this and not be silly. Not be caught up with the things of the world. Follow my example and take note of those who do. And I think the lifestyles of Christians ought to be models that are worthy of being followed. If somebody were looking at you and saying, you're a Christian... Is that an example that they're good in following? If they follow your example, you may be the only Christian they ever know. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Don't be a, I know, Christian. Because a lot of what I tell you on Sunday mornings, you already know. That doesn't mean you're doing it. Big difference between the two. 
For Christmas, my son Luke got a model of the Titanic. The box it's, that it came in was Titanic. It's a big old box. It weighed about 35, 40 pounds. You know what it was made of? Legos. Legos. There's 558 little baggies in there. And I'm going, I hope to God the instructions are in the bottom because we don't have a prayer otherwise. I was overwhelmed. I looked at that and went, I don't want to see a model of the Titanic that bad. How about we just take a picture of something online? And, you know, I'd... My son is so tenacious. He worked on that thing every single day for three weeks straight. I thought, that's amazing. The detail, that... it was amazing. I'm following my son's example in patience. Because I don't have his patience and I want it. He has Christ's patience. We Christians must set an example that people can follow because others are looking. You may not even know they're looking at you, but they're going to follow your example, good or bad. A lot of responsibility comes with that. Don't be an I know Christian. Oh, I know that, Pastor Jim. Are you doing that? I don't care what you know. I care what you practice because other people are watching. I don't want you stumbling anybody else. You may be the reason somebody doesn't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of your bad example. I'm not going to let you off the hook on that one. If you're a child of God, you need to be setting a good example for others to follow in all of these things that he has, has just mentioned. You don't want to be a I know Christian. It makes you sound smug. It makes you guilty of a greater offense. To know what's right to do and not do it is a worse sin. The Bible tells us. Verse 17, join with others in following my example, brothers. Take note of those who are living according to the pattern. We gave you as often as I have told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Oh, they claim to be Christians. They're just not. They claim to have Christ's priorities, but they have the world's instead. And they don't even know it. Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we go visit the sick? Didn't we cast out demons? I never knew you, Jesus said. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Wow. There will always be people inside and outside of the church whose minds are set on earthly things instead of heavenly things. When he mentions destruction in verse, the first of verse 19 there, that's the opposite of salvation. And it's because of their extreme self-centeredness. They're not concerned with God. They're not concerned with Christ. They're self-centered. Their God is their fleshly appetites, their wants, their desires come first. And before anything else, they've set their minds, their hearts, they're on the things of this world instead of the next. And I stumbled across something this week that just struck the right note. Uh, there was a, a man by the name of Ray Comfort 
who's very much an evangelist and has been for 40 years, and he wrote a little devotional book that I read from time to time called Think on These Things. And he put it better than I could ever hope to, so I'd like to quote him if you don't mind. He says in this, in the devotion uh, for yesterday, the ungodly live for whatever gives them pleasure. They therefore involve themselves in illegal activities. They risk their lives with illegal drugs. They overindulge in alcohol and even drink and drive. They are given to the love of money and ambition and to anger and contention. They habitually overeat and develop the associated killer diseases. They smoke cigarettes that kill them, speed in fast cars, run red lights, and risk their lives in extreme sports for nothing more than the rush of adrenaline. Their promiscuity brings sexually transmitted diseases, and they frequent bars and wild parties where violence often breaks out. However, the godly live God-fearing lives and are therefore protected from many of these activities that are so often uh, associated with premature death. The fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord indeed prolongs days. Proverbs 10.27 Hmm. Well put. Verse 20, in contrast to the people whose mind is on earthly things, should be the Christian community. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is radical because the Philippian church prided itself in being Roman citizens like they actually were a part of Rome. What Paul is reminding him is the same thing Jesus said to his disciples. You are in the world, but not of the world. Don't think like the world. Don't aspire to the same things the world does. Inquire of God. Search out the word. There's principles throughout there that make for a better life. Our citizenship, it's not in Rome as it was for the Philippians. They were living in their town as colonialists and their citizenship was in heaven, and they were very proud of that citizenship. But similarly, Christians, while living on earth, have our citizenship elsewhere. It's in heaven. Act like it. Act like it. In this world, we Christians are strangers and aliens, foreigners here in the world fully engaged in the world, but not of the world. So think on who you are, where you're at, and where you're going. As a Christian, as a Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the problem of a Christian who thinks like the world. You have a divided heart. Paul says in verse 20, we are eagerly waiting a Savior from heaven, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He, okay, let me just sum this up for you if you missed the point. He's coming back. He's coming back. Ready or not, he's coming back. I encourage you to stay ready. Because you don't know when he's coming back. Could be, could be momentarily. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 7, it says, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly await the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I just don't want to trip and stumble as much moving forward as I have in the past. The promise of the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jude, in verse 24, says this, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. I love that. It's the only passage in the whole Bible that says, this is how you can keep from falling. This is how you can keep from sin. If there's a real struggle going on in your life with the weakness of the flesh, this is what we can do about it. And we know, verse 21, that transformation is coming. 1 Corinthians 15, you might want to jot that in a margin somewhere. 1 Corinthians 15 tells you all about the body that's waiting for you. A body that'll never perish, never grow old, no hurts, aches, pains, arthritis, Come, Lord Jesus. But read 1 Corinthians 15. Now, when he says in verse 21 that transformation is coming, look at, look at this. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. It doesn't mean we're all going to look like Jesus. That's not what that means. But you look at his body, it was glorious. It was perfect. He was able to eat. Yay! <laughs> We're able to eat in heaven. That, that, that's good news. <laughs> Very good news for me. Transformation is coming. But the word used here for transform isn't metamorphosis. It's an interesting Greek word. Metaschimazito. And you go, what? Meta means beyond. Schematzito is where we get the word schematic. Your body, it's beyond the schematic that it presently bears. It's gonna, if you look like Pee Wee Herman now, maybe you'll look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. I don't know. Whatever body God's got for you, beyond the schematic. It speaks of outward appearance, materially, outward uh, appearance with the immortal you inside. It's not that we're going to be all images of Jesus Christ. You will look like you, but better. You will know what you know, but more. You will love like you love now, but in a more complete fashion. You won't become someone or something else. There's a big distinction 
Satan can appear as an angel of light. He can transform himself beyond the schematic. He can change the outward, but the inward nature of Satan is still the same. When you and I take on this immortal body, it's still the you inside. You know this to be true because, let me just speak to your inside for a second. Your outside may be falling apart this morning. If you're past 65, I know it is. It doesn't matter how much time you spend in the gym, decay and decrepitation is coming. Sorry, bad news. The gyms don't tell you that, by the way. So we're going to pump all this iron. Why? You know anybody who's 85 and pumping iron? Nobody. Nobody in their right mind, anyway. It's always an effort to change the outside, and God says, I want to change the inside. There is an eternal you inside of that body. Have you noticed that? I'm 71 years old, but can I tell you this? There's a 19-year-old inside of here just itching to come out. Just itching to come out. That wants to get on the go-karts and race everybody. It wants to jump motorcycles 20 feet in the air like I used to when I was a kid. There's that immortal 19-year-old inside of here just itching for the vehicle to express itself in. It's coming. It's coming. Your new body, Isaiah 40, just gives us a taste. You'll run as far as you want to. Never be wearied. You'll walk and not grow tired. <sighs> when I was running track in, in high school, after about a lap or two, I got dead tired. Imagine being able to run as far as you want and never get tired. <sighs> the glorious days are coming. Don't get so caught up in the things of this world. Our bodies are going to be like his. They're going to be glorious. They'll never perish, never get sick again, never be infirmed. No cancers, no more surgeries, nothing like that at all. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's why I'm straining towards what's ahead, forgetting the past. Why? That's past. It's garbage. It's old. And Satan, and only Satan, wants to keep me tied to it because it is so stinking dysfunctional. That's why it keeps coming up in your mind. Satan wants you to walk in discouragement and defeat. Why would you want to do what Satan wants you to do versus what God wants you to do? Forgetting the past, straining towards what is yet ahead. That has to be your perspective. Is I am not who I was, praise God, but I'm not yet who I'm going to be. So I keep my eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's coming. Our change in that day, it's going to be instantaneous when Christ comes in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, and our bodies are going to be glorious. Our bodies be like that of the Son of God. We'll all receive glorified bodies like His. No more limitations that we experience in our lowly bodies now that are humbled by disease, infirmity, and sin, and temptation. I'm looking forward to never being able to be tempted again. <sighs> what a nice day that will be. Our resurrected bodies will be like Christ in our sanctification complete. And First John ends his letters by saying this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and yet what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That is yet to come. Paul has just in this chapter told us how to get from here to there. How to get from here to 
when Christ comes back. He's already given us the outline that works so well for him. Don't let Satan keep you trapped in an endless loop of the past that is ridden with failure and fraught with things that make your stomach tied up in knots. Do what first what Philippians 3 says. If we actually do these things, continuously forgetting what is behind and continuously looking forward to what lies ahead, knowing it's a process that Christ will help me with, but only to the extent I'm in His Word and in prayer and seeking His face with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deliver yourself from the busyness that you're in bondage to. Deliver yourself, or more accurately, allow Him to deliver you from the past that you've incessantly given over to Satan. Oh, I used to say, oh, this happened to me. You know, forget it. That's what the command of Scripture is. Forget I don't want to hear about it. God, can I just tell you this? God does not want to hear about it. He met you back there. He saw what went on. He knows it. He's handled it. Move on. Some people realize, fail to realize when Christ came, he, he set us free. He opened the prison doors and says, come on out. And some of us are still sitting on the cot going, you know, I'd, I'm still in bondage. The door's open, man. What are you waiting for? Get off your backside and get out of jail. He's giving you a get out of jail free card. You're waiting for what? Let's stand and close in prayer. What we need is you, Lord, more than anything else. Forgive us, forgive us, Lord, where we've gotten our priorities wrong, where we've chased after the things of the flesh, made our appetites our God, whether it's things of this world that tie us to this world, things that tie us to a dysfunctional past. It's all sin because we've forgotten what we've been delivered from. We've forgotten the one who delivered us. We've forgotten that we are here and now children of the living God. We have forgotten or allowed the enemy to rob us of the thought process that remind us our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior that is soon to come from there. The global situation tells me the nearness of the hour. The rise of China and Russia and Iran for the first time in history is right here at the doorstep. The book of Revelation tells us all three of those key players will be a part of an end-time scenario under the control of the Antichrist. Lord, you're coming soon. And yet I fear that there are many people that are just kind of lukewarm, like the Laodicean church that just kind of took everything for granted, was lukewarm, had, had little enjoyment in the things of the kingdom and little enjoyment in the things of the world. And they were torn between the two and experiencing victory nowhere. If that's anybody in this room, I pray this morning, Heavenly Father, they'd pray, Lord Jesus, I give you all my heart. Forgive me the sin of my distractions and the weakness of my flesh. Forgive me the things that I've devoted way too much time to and forfeited the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I am yours. Take me as I am, Lord. Do not leave me as I am. I want to be more. I want to be close. You're the great I am. Reveal yourself to each one of us this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, please.
Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. The altar is open. Deacons and elders, pastors would be glad to be down here and pray with you. It's just a good time for a period of rededication. To take a new grip with tired hands and stand firm on tired and shaky legs. Ask him for strength and he will give it to you. Ask him for the fruit of his Holy Spirit and it is yours for the asking. He's just waiting for you to take that first step. He's done all the others. It's one thing I do. Forgetting the past. Straining toward what's ahead. I give it to you, Lord.